Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Please join Self and Society at Substack. Our guest today is Dave Kopel, Research Director of the Independence Institute in Colorado and a leading attorney on Second Amendment issues. He is the author of Aiming for Liberty, the Past, Present, and Future of Freedom and Self-Defense, Colorado Constitutional Law and History, several other books, and countless articles. Context here, in May, there was a couple of large-scale murders, one in Buffalo, one in Uvalde, and so partly we're discussing the ongoing gun policy debates that are coming in the aftermath of that, and of course, before that. A couple of quick disclosures. I get paid to write articles for Complete Colorado, which is funded by the Independence Institute, where Copel works, and Copel has received some funding from the National Rifle Association. I wanted to start off with a note about gun violence and violence more generally in the United States. So I looked this up on Wikipedia. We're 137th by nation in terms of homicide. We're at 6.3 homicides per 100,000. This is according to the most recent data that they had. By contrast, Japan has 0.3 per 100,000. Australia has 0.9. England and Wales has 1.2. Canada has two. So we're more than twice as violent as Canada, according to that metric. Now we're by no means close to the most violent. So a couple of, a few examples, Mexico has 28.4 homicides per 100,000. Nigeria, Jamaica have even more than that. Jamaica is the highest at 44.7. So we're radically more violent than some countries, radically less violent than some countries. Some people are saying it's the guns. So let me ask you, is it the guns? And if it's not the guns, what is it? Well, let, let's, uh, let's do a little thought exper uh, experiment. This is, uh, let, let's hypothesize uh, that it is the guns and then look at homicide over the long term. And this is actually uh, the basis of a uh, new law review article I have coming out um, in the Gonzaga Journal of International Law. And there's a, a link to it on my homepage, davecopel.org. So... I looked um, the, the best international sort of detailed data set on homicides uh, was published a few years ago by the Journal of the American Medical Association. And they did country by country, region by region, homicides, both for you know total homicides, gun homicides, all kinds of different things. And so I said, let's compare the US versus Europe, which is what everybody you know it, insists on doing. They say, you know, we're, we have much more in common with Germany or Italy than we do with Mexico. Um, I'm not exactly sure I understand that because we have a higher percentage of Mexican population uh, than we do of, of German population necessarily in this country. Uh, any, and of course, Mexico's our neighbor. But you take, and the, the JAMA had data for, uh, for the 20th century, it had 1990 through 2000. So let's take the highest year in that period for U.S. gun homicide. Now compare that to uh, the comparable rate in Europe. And the, the JAM article has an Eastern European rate and a Western European rate. So I just averaged those two. Um, and that, that, that highest homicide year was, was 1990 in the, in the JAMA data. So take, take that difference in gun homicide rates and extrapolate them all the way back to the turn of the century. You know, again, of course, adjusting for, for population. And let, let's make some more assumptions. Let's say that if, and it does show more gun homicides in the United States than in Europe. And let's make some further assumptions on that to make the figure as high as possible. I just told you I picked the highest year in the 1990 to 2000 rather than the average of those years. Second, let's assume that if the US had European style gun control, all of those homicides would have been eliminated. Let, because, uh, and we're assuming then that the criminals wouldn't have used a knife or their bare hands or anything else for every single one of those. And let's also make another assumption that guns have no utility for self-defense. We know that uh, a certain number of hom of homicides in the United States, some of them by police officers, some of them by uh, regular citizens, are in justifiable self-defense. And so they're really saving a life, maybe saving multiple lives. 
but let's just eliminate that. Let's assume that guns are never ever used for legitimate self-defense for any purpose, not to save a life, not to prevent a rape, not to uh, repel a home invader, that guns have zero utility uh, for, for personal safety. So then, you know, and, and these, these assumptions are not accurate, but I'm making those assumptions so we can get the highest possible figure to quantify the number of excess deaths in the United States compared to Europe because they have more gun control than we do. And doing all these steps, you get to about 745,000 excess homicides in the United States over the course of the 20th century compared to Europe if we had had Europe's gun homicide rate rather than the American gun homicide rate. So 745,000, almost three quarters of a million. That's a lot of people. Now let's look at the broader picture. That data from the Journal of the American Medical Association I just gave you was uh, mainly about you know, what we consider sort of ordinary day-to-day -day homicides. Uh, criminal kills some people while robbing a liquor store, or, there's a, or a criminal kills eight people in a workplace, or a police officer shoots somebody, or a home defender shoots somebody. You know, all those ordinary things, uh, unfortunately. Um, but what JAMA doesn't really take into account, or these, this data didn't take into account, is, is large-scale homicides by government. Government is by far the largest killer in the world uh, in terms of intentional homicides. And of course, that makes sense because governments are, by definition, things are, that are organized to do things at large scale. And they, they can do things at large scale that, that others can't, like build an interstate highway system or murder millions of people. So bomb Mariupol into oblivion. Exactly, exactly. You know, and ordinary citizens couldn't do that, but the, the collective power of government can. So in Europe in the 20th century, there were over 87 million people murdered by government. And I'm not talking about deaths in war, you know, those are homicides too. But so like all the soldiers who killed each other in World War II and World War I and all the other wars in Europe, this figure, this 87 million figure doesn't include a single one of them. This is all about government murders of civilians. So you've got 87 million murders by government just in Europe alone in the 20th century. If we look at the, the world, we have over, well over 200 million murders by government. So for reasons we can discuss in a little bit, uh, it's pretty clear that high levels of gun ownership in a nation have protective effects against mass murder by government. Not always perfect, not, not, not certain to solve everything, but at the scale of saving many, many, many lives, and even more so of deterring mass murder in the first place. So you look at the comparative dangers. US, we don't have enough gun control. Compared to Europe, 745,000 excess murders in the United States, murders, homicides in the United States in the 20th century. Europe, they arguably have too much gun control, not enough people. So the governments are always more power than, powerful than the people. And when you have a government that's more powerful than the people, you set up a situation that makes it possible to have mass murder by government, 87 million of those. So this risk scale is about 100 to 1, that too much gun control is more dangerous than too little. And I'd say, I can talk about that from my personal experience. Some of my ancestors are Lithuanian and German Jews. Uh, the Germans came here in the 1860s or, and the Lithuanians in the, the early 20th century. And as the data show, when they moved from Germany or Lithuania to the United States, they took on a notably increased risk that they or their descendants would be killed by some American criminal with a gun. But also by leaving those countries for the much more gun-dense 
United States, they drastically reduced the risk that they or their descendants would be murdered by the government. And of course, in Germany, uh, during the National Socialist German Workers' Party uh, government, the Nazis of 1933 to 1945, those risks materialized, and obviously they materialized in uh, Lithuania, uh, both under the uh, the communist regimes and during also during the period when Lithuania was conquered by the Nazis. So if it is the guns, the bottom line is the countries that have a lot of guns are on the whole safer in the long term against murder. And if you're not counting murder by government, uh, you're, you're missing about 99% of the murder that goes on uh, in this world. Maybe it's not 98%, maybe it's 95, but it's, it's, the, it's the vast majority over the long term. Okay, so you and I agree on quite a few issues. We've known each other for quite a few years. And so I just gonna... want, to, I want to interrupt and say our parents knew each other too. My dad, Jerry Copel, served in the state legislature with your mom, Vicki Armstrong. So, oh, aunt. She's my aunt. Aunt, sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. This family alliance goes back, or family friendship, uh, goes back many, many decades. I think even before Ronald Reagan was president. You know, I didn't actually know that they served at the same time. So that's interesting. Oh, I'll have to go back absolutely. and look at the years. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, good to know. So, but I am going to push back a little and play some devil's advocate just because sure. there's not a third party here. Right. So here is one line of argument against the sort of claims that you're making. If we, sure, if we look at Russia, for example, okay, they have a long history of totalitarianism. Right now, it's becoming more and more authoritarian, which is kind of putting the whole world at risk. Yeah. But if we look instead, it's a government like England's government. It's not really plausible, or at least not as plausible, that that government could ever descend into the sort of just genocide like self-genocidal mayhem that say a Russia might descend into. Um, so what do you say to that line of, of pushback? Well, I, I think you're, you're accurate in, in your description of what's possible in England this month or next year. But one of the things this article looks at is let's look at things over the course of the long term, a century. You know, if you, uh, your country goes without genocide 35 years in a row, and, but then in year 36, you have genocide. Uh, that kind of skews all your uh, murder statistics upward pretty high. In the course of the 20th century, there are only eight nations in the entire world that for the entire century, A, maintained their self-government, you know, weren't conquered by another country, and B, maintained a democracy. There's 196 nations in the world approximately. Only eight of them managed to pull that off in the course of the 20th century. Um, United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Switzerland, Sweden, and Iceland. And that's it. So overall, the odds are uh, definitely against the idea that a country is always going to, that it, because a country is free now, it's always going to be free. And in fact, you can look at you know, look at where the genocide took place in Europe, in countries like, uh, look at Germany, look, look at Europe in 1900. You've got plenty of countries that have real solid, strong democracies, pretty, some of them with pretty good social welfare states that keep people even happier. Germany, France, Netherlands, uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, Norway, uh, among the examples. All of those had solid functioning democracies, and all of those, for one reason or another, either foreign conquest uh, for most of them, or changes in political conditions in the country, in Germany's case, uh, led to mass murder by government taking place there. You know, I mean, look, look at the Netherlands. They were, from 1900 to 2000, they were only in an unfree government being ruled by Germany's National Socialists for four years, from 1941 to 1945. So great, you did, you did great for 96 out of 100 years. And so the fact that you had all these gun controls those years, no big deal. But those 1941 to 45, 
when the Germans were mass murdering the Dutch Jewish population and, and killing and enslaving plenty of others, uh, then the gun shortage in that country was really, really harmful. And in fact, so much so harmful uh, that it outweighs whatever benefits Netherlands got from gun control the, the rest of the, uh, the century. There's this theory of American exceptionalism, which I, you know, I, I do agree that America, for a variety of reasons, is a special country. But I don't, I think it would be arrogant and foolish to say that because America has maintained its democracy so far, 1776 onward, that we're guaranteed uh, to keep that forever. And in fact, as, as the article goes into the details, uh, you, you know, there are a lot of very worrisome signs right now. We have in the 2020 election, the loser made false, outrageous lies about the election supposedly being stolen. And a great many member of his, members of his party, the Republican Party, uh, either believed that or went along with it. And in 2016, the person who lost the election also made outrageous lies about stolen elections. And about half the members of her party, the Democratic Party, uh, still believe those ridiculous lies that the 2016 election was stolen. And of course, in between Stacey Abrams, a woman of little accomplishment other than winning a state representative race once, or a few, maybe more than once in Georgia, who lost an ele the election in Georgia by a wide margin for governor, made herself a national superstar in her party with her own phony baloney claims about a stolen election. So when you have a situation where in a democracy, whichever side loses the election won't accept the loss and instead makes up lies about a stolen election and a lot of the public is either so willfully gullible or stupid or hyper-partisan and disconnected from the truth or whatever. But when you get a situation where people won't accept losing an election, that tells you you got a democracy that's in real peril. And so therefore, I think it would be foolish uh, to say that the United States is guaranteed to always have a free government. I mean, I, from, you know, I hope that's true, but there's, there is no guarantee of it. And the, the prospects of that, to me, uh, look worse maybe than they ever have um, in the course of American history. Well, it is sort of ironic that the same people are saying, oh my God, we almost just had a coup. And also we don't need guns for defense against tyranny, right? The same group of people in, in yeah. many respects, which does strike me as odd. But that does bring me to a second line of pushback that I've been hearing recently, which is along the lines of, well, sure, if we're looking at ethnic minorities and so on, there might be a line of argument here, but look at the other side of the problem. So for example, some of the people who are at the US Capitol on January 6th of last year actually were stashing, had stashes of guns nearby. They never yeah. accessed those during that event, right. but they at least planned on it or made it a possibility. So the pushback is, well, the fact that we have these racial nationalists who are forming these private militias, quote, and arming themselves heavily, isn't that sending us up for more of a risk like for falling into a tyrannical type of government if they form like a basically a pr private military squad to defend somebody who would be seeking to overthrow an election or something like that? Sure. And, and you, you, you can look at similar risks all around the world. I mean, that in the 1920s and early 1930s in Germany, uh, you had both the, the communists and the Nazis who really are fundamentally the same, even though they, they have some differences in their marketing and slogans. They're basically mass murdering totalitarians. Um, the communists and the Nazis there had their own little private armies who would fight in the streets all the time. And we are starting to see the, the beginnings of that in the United States, just like you, you said with that, that one example. And you can certainly have others, uh, including the, uh, the Antifa so-called uh, terrorist group. I mean, that, that's, uh, that they call themselves anti-fascists is uh, uh, 
preposterous because they are very much mimicking uh, the behavior of Hitler's brown shirts and similar private thug organizations. So yeah, you've got the the Antifa on the uh, on the political left. You've got the, the people like some of the January sixth uh, criminals on on the supposed right wing. Uh, to me, it's sort of all the same. All these people are bad. They're direct enemies of democracy and freedom and want rule by a strong man and want to really destroy our American Republic. Um, so what are the conditions that lead for them to have success? In a, we know from around the world that whatever the gun control laws are supposedly on the books, the, when the government is run by bad people, they will make sure that their supposedly private allies get the guns. You see that in, in Sudan, where the, uh, uh, during the, the genocide um, against the Darfuris, uh, Sudan has very, very tough gun control laws. But the uh, Janjaweed Arab tribes that were perpetrating genocide against the African Darfuris. I mean, the, those both sides I just mentioned have what would seem to us in the United States, the same skin color, but they have these very precise racial distinctions. And uh, they were loaded with guns. So the Darfuris, you had the gun control for them. For the Janjaweed, uh, the government didn't seem to pay much attention to the gun control for the Janjaweed getting their guns, however, and mass murdering the Darfuris. Same thing in Venezuela, very strict gun control. You know, same, same rhetoric as we have in the United States is Maduro and Chavez uh, talk, the, the communist tyrants who gradually consolidated their power, uh, saying, oh, we're gonna like not have private guns in Venezuela because we're against violence. And the children, our youth are, are, are gonna lead us to this nonviolent path. Well, except that, uh, the exception to the gun ban for everyone rule in Venezuela is it doesn't apply in practice to the colectivos, which are criminal gangs, many of them uh, trained by the Cuban secret police, uh, which is the power behind the throne in Cuba. And so when people come out in the streets for peaceful demonstrations, the colectivos are the ones who show up and start shooting them all. Um, so uh, and even when governments are well-meaning, the gun control can backfire. So in Germany, in, this, in the late 1920s, the democratic government said, yeah, we have this really bad problem of uh, government of you know, the communist private army fighting the, uh, the Nazi private army. So they introduced a law to have comprehensive gun registration. Um, and try to keep the guns away from the Nazis and the communists, which is a good idea in, in principle. And as the bill's being debated in the, the Bundestag, the uh, German legislature, some people say, you know, there, there, is, there is kind of a risk of having these registration lists, because what if these lists fall into the hands of one of the, one of the extremists? You know, like if, if the, the communists or the Nazis can steal the gun registration list in, in Frankfurt, then they'd know all the homes to go to to burglarize to get more guns. That was a fair concern. But what they missed was the much larger concern. What if the government itself falls into the hands of the extremists, which is what happened in Germany in 1933. And they immediately, the Nazis, started using the gun control registration lists, which were created by a duly elected democratic government a few years before that was trying to do its best. And they use those to go around and disarm their political enemies and disarm them and generally being the uh, step precedent to mass murder. Same thing in France. They had, uh, you know, the communists and the fascists uh, brawling in the streets in the 1930s. They set up a gun registration law. And then by 1940, the French government has collapsed and is now run by the Germans under military occupation or under a, a puppet fascist uh, regime in, in part of southern France. 
And so again, the registration lists and the government itself falls into the hands of the extremists and the registration lists are used to uh, disarm the, pub, uh, the decent people. I'm going to ask a broader question. It's off my yeah. list, off my list topics, but I think it's important in today's age sure. in this context. So it seems like globally, we have the rise of authoritarian movements to some extent in the United States, Venezuela, Brazil, Hungary, Russia, of course, yeah. some of Russia's allies. Syria has just been a disaster for a long period of time. Yeah. Even if you count uh, Afghanistan, what's happening there still. I don't know if that's, it's not quite in the same category, but definitely. It's a totalitarian evil government. And so what do you, I know it's a topic for like four hour discussion, but briefly, what do you see as behind this seemingly global rise of this virulent nationalist authoritarian movements? Well, I, I would say I'm more concerned about the authoritarian or totalitarian aspect than I am about the, the national thing. I mean, there's, and this is a debate that goes on, you know, in now on the pages of National Review and things like that. You know, and nationalism is now some supposedly dirty word. Um, people use it for various things. What I think of being a patriotic American is loving my country, loving the good things about it, wanting to improve the bad things about it, being proud of my country and wanting to, to help it. And uh, there's nothing wrong with the fact that because I'm an American, I like America more than I like uh, Japan or Taiwan or Brazil or, or any place else, all of which are fine countries. Uh, but you know, as a nationalist, it's okay to love your own country uh, the most. But of course, that, that can be perverted in the sense of you say, well, we're, we're so good, we therefore should be able to rule people who don't want to be ruled by us, which, as we talked about, uh, is, is kind of the way of the world and, and happens quite often. I, I, I don't know the, the global cause, the cause of that. We, we could speculate, and there, there are so many things, and people talk about the global economy and, and all those things. You know, I mean, the, the global economy has been going on, uh, you know, practically since the age of sale. You know, I mean, been by 1680, uh, an Amer American Indian who lived on the, uh, the banks of one of the Great Lakes was pretty tied in to the French economy via the, the peltry trade and then things like that. So yeah, I mean, we, we have more and more and more globalization, but I'm not sure that's what's, uh, what's to blame for it. Okay. Well, another Coloradan who lives not too far from me is Robert Zubrin, and he's been writing about Alexander Dugan in Russia. So there does seem to be an ideological movement that is promoting um, whatever terminology you want to give it some some kind of some kind of authoritarian uh, bent. So yeah, we can you know again we can well well on Russia specifically. Remember, this is a country that was a you know long-standing authoritarian mess till the Bolsheviks took power in a coup in 1917 and thereafter for generations ruled that and you know Stalin and Lenin and, and their successors killed and imprisoned people and enslaved them at a rate vastly 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 higher than the czars so germ you know they in essence you know Russia under the the communists had a uh, a program to kill everybody who showed any inclination to think for himself or herself, either kill him directly or put him into slave labor. So it was sort of like, you know, it, to the extent that personality traits have any genetic component, Russia self-selected, let's kill all the independent thinkers. Let's kill everybody who cares about freedom. Let's try to build a serf-like population that won't question uh, the rule from above. And, you know, then uh, they killed tens of millions of people in doing that. So has that changed the, you know, the personality composition of Russia? Uh, perhaps it has. You know, they've, they've sort of bred for uh, uh, the worst, character, worst human characteristics rather than the best ones uh, by killing all the people who have the best ones. 
Well, certainly I would, I mean, I would give a, a lot of credence to just the ideology in the air and just what people yeah. read and talk about a lot. Yeah. I can pause and notice that at, as, as many people as Adolf Hitler killed and his, his followers killed, he was not the worst mass murderer in history. That, oh, title, no. that title goes to Chairman Mao and Stalin is somewhere in, in between those two. So right. between Hitler's those got, three, we have yeah. scores of millions of people killed. Right. Hitler's got the bronze medal, uh, Stalin, the, the silver medal, and Mao, by, by a good margin, uh, the, uh, the gold medal for most mass murders in, in history. Um, well, o- over 80 million uh, in his regime alone. That, that you know we, that was that that was, was not part of that 87 million European figure we were talking about before because mm-hmm. he did all his killing in Asia. Just as a side note, I saw that the Victims of Communism Museum yes. just opened in Washington D.C. So I hope to make it out there and visit that at some point. And I, I haven't I haven't been there and read much about it, so I don't know what exactly what it houses. But I was glad that somebody's making an effort to. Well, it, it's really important, and, and I guess you were you were talking about the increasing popularity of. of authoritarian ideologies around the world. One cause of that in the United States, and it might not be the the biggest cause, but it's in there, is the highly deficient uh, way that history is taught in most of American education. You know, I mean, we'll put aside the fact that I was was talking with a, a friend who was a CU undergrad a while ago, and you know, she'd gotten good grades got into CU as an out-of-state student, uh, which is not an easy thing to do. There's, there's only the upper level of American high school students could do that. She had never heard of Chairman Mao. You can get an American regular education and you, you will have heard of the Nazis and the fascists in the 1930s and learn that they were very bad. But you will not have learned that the communists of that same period and thereafter were even worse, were equally totalitarian as the Nazis, and because they uh, stuck around in power longer, killed many, many, many more. So you have yet another generation that is susceptible to these satanic lies uh, of of Marxism uh, about, oh, you know, we're here for equality and human flourishing and freedom, and no Marxist society ever has that. Once you get the Marxists in power, it's all uh, oh, what we meant by democracy was we'll have all the power. You know, what we meant by economic freedom was you're going to be slave laborers for the government. Communism is a lie from start to finish. It's based on envy and hatred. And that's what it always is in practice once it's in power. But on the way in, you know, there's the people who get seduced by the big lie. You know, Fidel Castro. Uh, when he was uh, the revolutionary leader in Cuba, you know, it's like, what's your philosophy? He wouldn't say I'm a communist. Um, he'd say I'm a Christian and I like baseball. Uh, and uh, he, he didn't do too good on the Christianity front once he was in power. I guess he filled, mostly fulfilled his promises on baseball other than keeping the Cuban baseball players uh, trapped in Cuba. Um, but he took all the guns and then imposed a totalitarian government where people have no freedom. And he became, uh, at the time, one of the richest men in the world. It's always about the creation of the new class, about the police state. Um, And the fact that most American high school and college students have no idea about that uh, shows a failure of American education. That's why the Victims of Communism Museum is, is very important and I guess I'll go back to your question uh, about like what's going wrong wrong right now. Antonio Gramsci was a uh, very influential uh, communist socialist uh, political philosopher in the early 20th century, and he addressed the problem from their, you know, his side's point of view is like, oh yeah, can you get people to vote for you know social democracy that might like raise taxes some and then have a bigger welfare state. Yeah, you know, those those kind of things are are doing fine in the political process. But the kind of stuff we want, you know, uh, the the revolutionary socialism, communism, 
to win elections and you know and then cancel elections thereafter. Uh, we're we're not getting anywhere on that, you know, despite the fact that we think we have so many good ideas. So what's the problem? Well, you, you got the family, you've got, which gives people a very intense loyalty to certain people that supersedes their loyalty usually uh, to the government or some abstract idea. You know, you've got religion, you've got communities, you've got all these forces that prevent us from attracting people to our cause, which is all of the popular will gets funneled into submission to the great leader. So what are we going to do about that, says Gramsci? Well, we're not going to get anywhere, he rightly says, until we get to the root cause, which is family, schools, religion, communities. We got to wipe them all out, he accurately explains. But we're not going to do that this week. We're not going to do it next year. We've got to go through what he calls the, the long march through the institutions, uh, evoking Mao's famous long march where he retreated during the Chinese Civil War and kept his army intact. And, and they've done that. You compare when I went to college in the 1970s and 80s or colleges in the 50s and 60s and before, there was a lot of free thought there. You know, you could have a Marxist on the faculty. Sure, I got taught comparative lit by a Marxist professor who was a great professor and a, and a, and a nice guy besides. And he, and he wasn't trying to indoctrinate us. He was, at, at least at that level, he was just trying to open us up to understanding literary theory and from various perspectives. Um, but over time, the Marxists and the hard left have taken over universities, are increasingly taking over uh, K through 12 education and imposing their anti-American, anti-family, destruction of civil society uh, doctrines a step at a time. And so Gramsci turned out to be a theoretical a genius at strategy in the long run. And part of the problem of where we are is uh, how successful his followers have been. Because they're always the kind of people, communists, uh, who say, sure, oh, I'm all for freedom of speech when there's one of me and 34 of the others. Uh, but once we get enough power to suppress the speech of the others, then we're against freedom of speech. Then if you disagree with me, it's hate speech, you're a racist or whatever. Um, and, and that's, you know, that is uh, a large part of the problem of where we are in, in the US today. Okay, let's switch gears to personal self-defense as opposed to these sort of movement level or yeah. country level yeah. issues. Um, so one thing I'll observe is that there's sort of a built-in media bias in the sense that a, self, a case of self-defense is often not reported, sometimes not reported at all, because nothing happens. Hey, big news, nothing happens, yeah. right? Because something bad was prevented from happening. Right. So, and it's hard to even know that those exist a lot of times because nothing happened. Right. Whereas, you know, murders, especially mass murders, are easy for the media to recognize, get yeah. huge eyeballs. Um, so that's an observation, but what is, what is your general sense of the value of self-defense in light of, it seems like every year or two, we get a new study that says some, some variant of a gun in the home is more dangerous to you than to the bad guy. Um, so what is your, what is your general sense of the discussion of personal self-defense these days? Well, and, and the, the point you studied about these so-called studies, a lot of which turn out to be, uh, not very persuasive when you actually delve into the study and see what assumptions they made along the way and how they how the data had to be tortured uh, to, until it would confess to uh, the result the author demanded. There are some homes where uh, a gun in the home probably does make things more dangerous uh, for, for that home. You know, you, you got a home with a, a violent alcoholic, uh, someone with uh, severe mental problems that incline them to either personal or interpersonal violence, uh, for example, uh, or, or just people who lack basic self, emotional self-control. 
sometimes the, the gun might be more dangerous. The gun, having a gun might, might make that home uh, more dangerous. And there are some people in the anti-gun movement, not, not all of them, but, but there, there are definitely some who I think accurately recognize that they don't have the self-control to be able to own a gun responsibly. And so they, and, and so good for them for not having a gun, that they're making the right decision. But they then project that onto everyone else um, and uh, imagine that everyone else has their same, uh, you know, limitations and inabilities uh, to act responsibly. Um, in responsible hands, um, firearms are used in the latest research about 1.6 million times a year uh, for self-defense. That's a study by uh, um, Georgetown professor uh, William English. Uh, he's published it. You can get it on SSRN.com. Put his name in there and you can get what is in essence the advanced book chapter uh, for his most recent study on the topic, which is the most sophisticated study that's ever been done on it. And so his estimate is about 1.65 million, 1.6 million defensive gun uses annually in the United States. And importantly, defensive gun use is about 80% of the time does not involve a shot being fired. You know, it, it's when the woman in the parking lot is suddenly surrounded by three large men and she draws her gun, the men decide they don't want to be in the parking lot anymore. You know, no shots fired, uh, nothing happened. And it, as you said, will, will the woman report that to the police? Uh, maybe, but maybe not, because that, even if she, presuming she's got a concealed carry permit, she's lawfully carrying. From her point of view, you know, we have plenty of cases where people have been engaged in lawful self-defense and then some district attorney, for whatever reason, uh, wants to prosecute them and bring a case against them. And maybe they'll eventually, the person who engaged in lawful defense will eventually win. But that's after going through hell uh, of a prosecution for murder or attempted murder or, you know, or some other crime, you know, $100,000 uh, at least for the criminal defense lawyer and more. So a lot of people, and, and, you know, we've, we've definitely seen too many. Um, examples of, of that. And, and, and so a lot of people just do the, what's for them the most personally protective thing, which is if I didn't fire a shot, I don't need, and, and the criminals left, uh, there's no point in getting the authorities involved. Yeah. Well, we're sure they'll just do their best to run those people down and make sure they run them in, right? Because <laughs> we, can, we can always trust the police to, well, to use their resources in, this, in the most wise way to actually cut down right. crime. Well, they often do, but they, they sometimes don't. And, you know, you, you can see the, the contrast is the, you know, between the drastic uh, the failure and, and cowardice uh, at Evaldi versus a situation that happened uh, just a few days ago at a school in Alabama where the same thing, criminal, you know, a bad guy was trying to get into the building. He was armed. This time the, the doors the locks on the building worked properly, and a police officer came up, immediately engaged, and killed the criminal. You know, so police are like everybody else. They're, they're not all the same. There are definitely instances of police cowardice that led to higher fatalities in mass shootings. Uvalde, uh, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, uh, Columbine High School uh, here in Colorado. Um, and, you know, uh, one can multiply this, but there are also plenty of mass shootings in schools and other places that you've never heard about because they didn't become a mass shooting because the police officer did act promptly and stopped the criminal early on. Uh, so there are, there are good cops and, and there are bad cops. And just like with guns, I'm all for the, the, the good ones and uh, the, the, against the irresponsible ones. So here's another irony among some people. They say, well, you, we need to trust teachers to teach your kids about sex, teach them about race, 
teach them, um, you know, about white privilege, all these other yeah. things. In all these ways, we should trust teachers. But we absolutely cannot trust any teacher to carry a gun, even if that teacher happens to be very well trained with a firearm. So I wanted to read a, a Texas Tribune headline and then get your reaction. The Texas okay. Tribu Tribune says, Texas teacher, teachers union survey finds that school employees don't want to be armed. But if you actually pull up the survey results, it says 23% said, yes, they do want to be armed. And yeah. I was actually shocked it was so high. I, I would have guessed it'd be like 5%. So to me, when you're getting almost a fourth of school, school employees, now this is in Texas, of course, it's not going to be the yeah. same in Massachusetts or wherever. Uh, to me, that was remarkably high. And what could be the argument against letting people who want to do it? Nobody's saying all teachers have to be armed. No one yeah. is saying that. So what, what's the, what could be the argument against letting teachers who want to and who want to undergo the training or have already done so? Uh, so what is, your, what is your reflection on that? Well, one argument against that is even if the teachers, and, and I should say the Independence Institute where I work, um, works with a program called FASTER which was started in Ohio, and now we have a faster Colorado, and there are pilot programs in uh, Utah and Arizona. And these, these programs train teachers and other school staff, like administrators, in emergency response against active shooters. They get training in, you know, not, not enough training to be a doctor, but enough training to do emergency medicine for gunshot or knife wounds, like keep, keep the victim alive, prevent the victim from bleeding out long enough to give, for the ambulance to come. And likewise, they are taught active shooter response by instructors who teach that same skill to law enforcement officers. And you know all the things about moving around room, taking cover, all that kind of stuff. These are people who already have a concealed carry permit. So they've already had basic firearms training and they get skills in active shooter defense over the course of a 26-hour uh, program. And at the end of it, for their firearms qualification proficiency, they have to exceed the firearms proficiency uh, that is required to become a certified law enforcement officer in the state of Colorado. So you got to shoot better than, than qualifying to be a police officer. And you have the specific training, that the same specific training the police do inactive shooter response. Um, thousands and thousands of teachers have been trained in this program. There has never been a single instance of any teacher, you know, misusing the gun, uh, having the gun taken by a student, any problem like that. And there's at these schools, maybe it's the deterrent effect, who knows, but there hasn't been even an attempted uh, active shooting at one of these schools that has the armed defenders. So it's all upside, no downside, if the top priority is saving children's lives. But for the gun ban groups, it isn't. They are happy to wave the bloody shirts and call people who disagree with them murderers and child killers and say the most vicious things because their view is the only thing you're supposed to do is crack down on gun owners in general. And the mass murders are the pretext uh, and the basis for mobilizing the political will to do that. And my view is, look, if, if you wanna use this to talk about you know, red flag laws, which I'm for if they're properly structured or other gun controls or mental health or whatever, like go for it. We, you, know, you, you can have more than one uh, solution to a large problem. But the people who won't accept properly trained teachers defending themselves and their students are putting their ideology ahead of children's lives. And that's another oddity because the same people just assume that whatever gun control measure the government puts into place will work perfectly. There won't be any problems with that. It'll work. And yet when it comes to teachers, like it's like the standard is totally opposite. If you can even imagine anything that might conceivably go wrong with the teacher carrying a gun, well, then that's reason to not allow it anywhere. And so it does seem like a double standard to me uh, on those grounds. That's because the, the anti-gun movements are fundamentally 
uh, not so much about public safety, but about a view of a properly ordered society. And in their view, like, yes, you, you can, you, you know, and the, they would have said this more explicitly uh, in the, and did say this more explicitly in, in the 70s or 80s or 90s uh, before Bloomberg took over everything and hired the world's finest PR professionals to, uh, to sugarcoat uh, what lies underneath uh, their approach. They believe is, guns for sports might be okay sometimes under strict regulation, but guns for personal defense are disorderly. That's not how a society is supposed to work. You're supposed to have a more top-down thing where the people at the top make wise decisions for everybody else and individual self-defense is just contrary to what they believe a properly ordered society uh, is like. So here's another question that could be a four-hour conversation, so I'll ask you to condense it. Yeah. But again, I'm seeing people attack the idea that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own a gun, because after all, it talks about a well-regulated militia. So what is your, has there been any developments as far as you see it, as far as that debate, since the big Supreme Court case on this, in this matter, or is it, what explains a continual um, attacks along these lines? That they're never going to be able to get to their, the, the, the anti-gun people, are never going to get, be able to get to the state they want to, uh, as long as there's a the, the people have a right to keep and bear arms. Um, so they have to come up with uh, you know so, some way to uh, delegitimate it or uh, interpret it out of existence. Um, there are always elaborations on the theory. Uh, but they've, they've always been weak, um, in my view. Uh, there, you know, th this notion that there's no individual right, it's only a government right, uh, certainly didn't exist between uh, 1791 and, uh, and 1900 in any substantial way. It's, uh, and it really, it really caught on in the, uh, the late 1960s and, and early 1970s among a, a certain set of the population, you know, the, uh, the wine and cheese crowd, as it was called back then, um, back when having uh, wine and cheese at your cocktail party was a rather sophisticated European thing instead of just getting out of a six pack of uh, Pabst and, uh, and some hot dogs. Uh, but it, it, no, it, it's always been an intellectually deficient thing. And the part of the weakness of that is how much the folks who take this argument have to make things up or chop quotes and, and fabricate evidence. So I know you've written a lot about this. So in the short notes, I'll try to throw up some major links to this, this kind of discussion yeah. from your perspective anyway. So there's a whole lot of policy questions that I could ask you pertaining to quote, assault guns, semi-autos, magazine capacity, age restrictions, red flag laws, which you mentioned. I think we both agree that red flag laws are okay in principle, but in some cases, the details are troublesome, maybe not uh, following due yeah. process sufficiently. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm gonna pick one of those for now and then see where it goes okay. on background checks. So I'm wondering what you think of this idea I've had for background checks. It seems like any sort of background check system you have, you need a positive list, basically a way to identify people, and then a negative list. In other words, people who should not have guns. Now, the way that the system works now is that uh, the federal government is checking each purchase on an individual basis. Now, they're not, they're not supposed to keep those records long-term. Of course, the NSA wasn't supposed to keep a lot of records. It, exactly. it too. Um, but ultimately, these records are required to be checked and can be, and eventually do make their way to the federal government once the uh, gun dealer goes out of business. So what do you think of this idea I had that, well, look, if you, have, if you have a positive list and a negative list, then just let everybody who's trying to sell a gun, check the ID, that's the positive list. I know that this person is who they say they are. If, if they're unsure, they can call an official in, make sure this ID is valid, and then check it against the negative list to make sure this person isn't on 
the naughty list, right? They're, right. So they're, they're not disbarred from owning guns. And it seems like something like this could allow for universal background checks, but without generating a lot of these records problems, registration problems that a lot of gun owners are worried about. And that, you know, the, the people who want a lot of gun restrictions, they just say, oh, you're crazy for worrying about that. You know, they're not coming out to get your guns, even though every fifth tweet on my feet is saying, yeah, we want to, we want to bail your guns and have the government come right. and seize them. So uh, what do you think about the, that pol broad policy issue? In oh, I, I agree with you completely on it. It's a technically feasible thing to do. And, you know, I, I would defer to you and uh, the other computer science and other type folks to talk about exactly how to, to operate this. Um, but, but very clearly, it, it can be done. You can have background checks, including what they call universal background checks, without gun registration. But the Bloomberg lobby, which is the, the, the big force behind uh, what they misleadingly call universal background checks, insists it be done in a particular way because the point of it is the registration list. You sell it to the public uh, for the background checks, you know, which is fine, and then you get your political victory out of that. But what you get in the long-term benefit from the Bloomberg side is a registration list that can later be used for gun confiscation. We know when Michael Bloomberg was mayor of New York City that the registration lists there have been and still are being used for gun confiscation in New York City. And we can talk country after country around the world. You know, we talked about uh, Germany and France. United Kingdom uh, uh, used registration for confiscation. United Kingdom and Australia and New Zealand have also used registration for confiscation. That's the point. You know, you can't, it's a lot easier to confiscate guns if you already have a list of where at least most of them are. Um, so no, we could, we could easily have background checks without gun registration, but that's, you know, I mean, uh, from the Bloomberg lobby's point of view, that's like saying, well, we'll have the, the wedding cake and just have the little man and woman or whatever couple on top, uh, but no cake. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, registration's the point of the whole thing. Okay. Which is why they insist on registration, even in ridiculous concepts. Like in, in some states, if you, uh, with supposedly universal background checks, if I was just teaching a gun safety class, you know, at, at my home, um, and as you know, in, in gun safety um, training, one of the things students learn is how to handle guns safely, like to how, how one person hands a gun to another person. You know, you, you make sure the firearm's unloaded, you open the actions so that the gun can't operate, you put the safety on, and then you safely hand it to one, from one person to another with the muzzle always pointing in a safe direction. And they enact laws that say those transfers have to go through, have to be rooted. You have to go down to a gun store and get a background check and permission for that. Or in the, a new law they, they passed in Washington state. If I was, had a, you know, taking a friend target shooting on my farm and the friend is gonna borrow my rifle for several hours, that we're supposed to go to the store, the gun store, run a background check on the friend, pay the background check fee, fill out the registration paperwork. Then we can go back to the farm, target shoot. Then when the friend wants to hand, the, hand his, my gun back to me, then we got to go to the gun store again, do a background check on me, re-register my gun, all those kinds of things. These aren't laws about public safety. These are laws about A, registering as many guns as possible, B, creating a situation where the vast majority of gun owners are going to be out of compliance with the laws because the laws are so preposterous uh, and difficult to comply with, which also has an effect of making confiscation easier uh, down the road. I'll do one more quick. I mean, it could be a long, another long discussion, but we'll make it quick on, okay. quote, assault guns as a part, as in the category of semi-automatic guns. Um, and then, of course, many of those guns accept gun magazines. So what do you think is the right way to think about that style or type of gun? 
Uh, the right way to think about it is this is another scam invented uh, or uh, perpetuated uh, by the gun ban groups uh, back in 1987. Uh, one of the most uh, creative uh, thinkers on the uh, gun ban side of things, a guy named Josh Sugarman, uh, who at the time was with the Educational Center uh, to End Handgun Violence, I think it's called now, is he runs a group called the Violence Policy Center. He wrote a strategy memo for the other anti-gun groups and said, look, you know, we've been, we, we got started in the, on this issue in the mid to early 1970s. We wanted to ban handguns. You know, we haven't really gotten very far on that one. And the media is getting bored with this. And we've got to stop banging our heads against the wall on, on handguns. We need, we need something new. And what he proposes, and it seems to have been adopted, and he was absolutely right strategically, is let's go after assault weapons. And he understood that an assault weapon is a semi-automatic, as, as he defines it, uh, a gun that fires one bullet when you press the trigger, just like every other normal gun. Um, and, but he says the public will think if it looks like a machine gun, it's a machine gun and this can only help us. He wrote that in 87, and 35 years later, after this has been a huge national issue for a third of a century, the vast majority of people who think they are for assault weapon bans think they are banning machine guns. So there's a, if you're in the gun control movement, you can never go wrong underestimating the stupidity of at least a fraction of the American people. Um, and the fact is, what gets called an assault weapon, you know, assault rifle, like a, a, an AR-15 platform rifle, for example. Its rate of fire is you press the trigger one time, you get one bullet, the, then the energy of the gunpowder explosion is used to eject the empty shell casing from the firearm to reload a fresh round into the firing chamber, and then you press another you press the trigger again to fire a shot. What I described is not only how an AR-15 fires, it's how a, you know, the boys' rifles from the uh, uh, 1930s fired. It's a mechanism that's, it's a, the semi-automatic mechanism has been in existence since 1885. And in fact, it's what's on the vast majority of handguns. So you see one of your friend who's got a Glock pistol or a, a Smith & Wesson pistol or Ruger and any of those, you know, kind of very common daily guns. That fires at just the same rate of fire as these so-called assault weapons. So they don't fire unusually fast. They just fire like the most common, typical, all-American handguns. And, but, you know, the, the anti-gun lobbies are brilliant at fooling people who don't know much about firearms, and some of whom have an intuitive hatred of either firearms or firearms owners, so they're willingly gullible uh, for whatever goes along. You know, and, and you, it, you and I see the same kind of things on Twitter, as we, you know that the, the AR-15 platform, which, as we said, fires at just the same rate as a Smith & Wesson handgun, um, is the most popular, most common rifle in American history very, very widely owned in the, in the many, many millions. And you have people who say the only reason somebody would want to buy one of these is because they want to be a mass murderer. Well, you know, the number of people who tens of millions of Americans own these kinds of guns, and they're definitely not mass murderers. The 99.9% are law-abiding, decent people who use their guns properly. And yet, this is the you know hateful projection uh, that the gun ban lobbies incite in people, thinking that so many of your so many millions of your fellow Americans are actually wannabe psychopath mass murderers. You know that you, you talk about what causes polarization and social division. Uh, you know the kind of lies that are perpetuated by the the gun ban groups and, and their their willing dupes. Uh, is certainly one cause of that. Okay. 
Well, we've been going for some time now and we could go for many more hours and I could play devil's advocate for yeah. a lot of that time if I if we if we went on. But I think we're going to wrap it up for now. And uh, I'll point out to listeners that Dave, much of Dave's work is at davecopel.org, which I'll put in the show notes as well. And uh, it's thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. As, even though we didn't get into all the details, I feel like that was a good overview of many of the important issues to be thinking about as we continue to discuss these issues. So thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Um, thank you for having me. This has been the Self and Society podcast, music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. For more, please find Self and Society at Substack.